You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm here on the uh, telephone with uh, a new friend of mine and, and a uh, fellow copper from New York City, Michael O'Keefe. I was... Uh, I don't remember what I was doing. I stumbled across him on some Facebook post. I think maybe it was a guy named T.J. English, is a pretty well-known writer, uh, made some mention about him or something. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but, but anyhow, I, I thought, you know, this would be interesting for you guys. Uh, here's a guy who, who was a copper just like me, and, and he ended up writing books. Now, I've only done documentary films, and I've written one book, and, and, but I'd like to talk to him. He, he's done fiction books and, and based them on stories from, from his life. Now, I've often thought that I'd like to do that, but I don't, I don't know. I, I don't have the creative juices. I don't think to get quite that far. Maybe I'll try it one of these days. So welcome, Michael. It's really it's a pleasure to have you on here. Great to be on. Thank you for having me. So, Michael, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience on the NYPD, first of all. Like I said, these guys all know that I was a cop for 25 years, and I primarily worked organized crime. I think you worked uh, in the homicide unit quite a little bit, but, but tell the folks a little bit about your career. Yeah, I, was, uh, I spent 24 and a half years in the NYPD. I uh, only retired because I got hurt and disabled. Uh, otherwise, I'd still be catching murders in Brooklyn. But uh, I started in 1986 in the uh, heart of the crack wars. Uh, was assigned to Washington Heights for my first six years. And uh, ultimately, uh, I don't know if uh, your listeners are familiar with the Washington Heights riots in 1992. But I started those. Uh, evidently, I killed the wrong drug dealer. Uh, who knew he was the patron saint of the cartel? And the mayor at the time, David Dinkins, uh, and city government... Uh, wanted my head on a stick the police department closed ranks around themselves and threw me to the walls and i had to face uh pretty much an entire summer as public enemy number one media did a real number on me too um it's worth a google but ultimately i was acquitted in the grand jury uh new mayor comes in new police department uh the second echelon guys who now elevated to the chief positions realized it was unfair what they did to me so they said they were going to take care of me but uh, their idea of taking care of me and my idea of being taken care of were two different things they ended up burying me in queens which is a quieter section of the city i spent three years there becoming a detective and pretty much had to threaten to take the chief hostage to get out and back to the barrio i ended up uh Long-time chief of department, Joe Esposito in the NYPD, he's a legend, loved me. Uh, we were good friends, Took uh, and he uh, arranged a transfer to get me to Brooklyn North, uh, specifically Bushwick, where, you know, largely I grew up. And um, I spent 17 years investigating murders and shootings there, and uh, I became a first-grade detective, which is actually a very prestigious and uh, rare rank in the police department. I think out of 6,000 detectives at any given time, there are maybe 100 first graders. And I was at the pinnacle of my profession when my body broke down and I had to leave. So that's it. That's my career in a nutshell. Uh, inter- interesting, Michael. Uh, you did. You spent most of your time investigating murders, and that's uh, uh, you're going to be an expert on that for sure. And you saw a lot of stuff, and you heard a lot of stories now. How, when did you start writing? You, I mean, 
you know, I've been I've been a policeman. I know about writing reports and and they don't really like a lot of creative stuff in those police reports. Right. I was actually um, you're a creative writer now. So uh, did you develop those skills writing police reports? Actually, I did. I did develop some of those skills. Uh, I honed them anyway, writing police reports. Uh, I started writing in, in the seventh grade, was introduced to creative writing. I had a pretty innovative teacher. Who is? Uh, she's now actually the head of the English department at St. John's University. But I discovered I liked it—poetry and short prose—and so I wrote all through high school. Had things published uh, in student publications. All through college, um, I think I was nominated for a Pushcart Prize for a one-act play, but I can't remember what play was or when it was. <laughs> but uh, I knew that I wanted to write, and then I came on the police department, and my. Um, Writing was consigned to basically just police reports, very fact-driven, very dry. Um, but as a rookie detective, one of my first big cases in Queens, I caught a uh, – it was a house party. They got robbed, and these guys had machine guns. I mean, you know, they were uh, – not the Intratex, but the real uh, the real deal, the Uzis and the Mac-11s. And they turned out to be a bad gang. And I caught that case. I did a great job, got everybody uh, identified, recovered a couple of weapons, made all the arrests – and now the thing doesn't go to trial for a year. One of the old-time detectives told me, don't document anything. The less you write, the less they can cross-examine you on. Worst advice I ever got. <laughs> because yeah. now when I'm on trial, I have no independent memory of anything. <laughs> and I get lambasted on the stand, particularly in cross-examination. But I was smart enough to throw myself on the sword and explain I got bad advice. I did not document enough, and I don't have an independent memory. And the jury actually hated the defense attorney and liked me for my candor, and I ended up slamming a guy for 30 years. So that worked out. But from that day forward, when I would document my investigations, I would do them each. We call them DD5s, investigative form. I would do them uh, as a, a narrative story, basically telling myself a story. And it worked. The only problem is I'm using my vocabulary and my writing style, and I'm invoking things like imagery and metaphor. And I, my first lieutenant uh, threw it through, through a case at me. He goes, what am I going to do with this? I don't even know what these words mean. I'm like, you're going to have to get a thesaurus because this is what I do now. And it worked. And ultimately, the test of it, one of my last cases was, uh, it's actually the subject of my next novel, was an arson triple homicide. And the victims were uh, an elderly uh, man, his elderly wife, and their son, 33-year-old son with Down syndrome. They weren't the intended targets, but they died in the fire. The intended target got away. But that case was actually three boxes of documents and forms. There's a lot of science in it. Uh, very, very difficult case to investigate. A lot of paperwork involved. But when I went in to testify on that homicide, I had to brought the boxes in on a hand truck, put them next to me uh, on the stand. And for three and a half hours, I testified to that homicide without referring to a single piece of paper because I had told myself a story and I knew the story. So, yeah, that was, that was probably as... Uh, as important writing as I've ever done. <laughs> so then, and when you decide uh, you'd try your hand at, at uh, selling the book, shall we say, selling one of these documents, you just went back to one of your stories and I, I no, no, what it was stories or was that 
Uh, no, Thirteen Stories actually uh, was the second book that I that I came out with, and it's actually a collection of previously published stories that had uh, either either been published or won prizes. They're all derived. From your no, career. no, Thirteen Stories is not. Uh, I think there's only one police story that oh, okay. uh, called uh, oh, okay. No Mulligans that's uh, actually based upon my career. Everything else I just kind of made up. My first book was shot to pieces, and the way that I got around to writing that is after I retired, I kept threatening to write a book. And my wife finally got tired of hearing about it, so she bought me a laptop, gave it to me, and said, just write the damn thing. And so my first novel was shot to pieces, and it is largely autobiographical. Pretty much all the police work in that book is stuff I did. You developed this Patty Durer character. Well, pa Patty Durr, interestingly enough, uh, was, was my birth name. I'm adopted. Yeah. So very few people knew that. I mean, they know it now because I tell everyone, but uh, very few people knew that and, uh, until I wrote the book. And, you know, they said, where'd you come up with a name like Patty Durr? I'm like, I didn't come up with it. It was given to me. <laughs> so. Interesting. Mm. So what, what, what was the crime? It was, I see a gang-related street assassination. What, what was the real story behind that? Uh, yeah, it was it actually as it appears in the book? Uh, a Dominican uh, drug gangster uh, is muscling in on the Latin Kings drug spots in Bushwick, and there's a conflict between them. There's a, a, a woman in the middle of it. It's always a woman in the middle of it. He and two uh, friends are coming out of a uh, a diner on Flushing Avenue and uh, and Wilson Avenue. This one, the, the actual doer, is. Uh, He's an underling of the Latin Kings. He, you know, he's not a he's not he's not in the hierarchy of the gang, but he's you know he's, he pumps dope, and he has the personal beef with with the victim, and uh, he ambushes him as he's on his way back to his car. And even though there were three guys right together, he puts all six into the into the victim, like he really wanted him dead. Yeah. Um, and then he took off uh, took off running and. Uh, we started the investigation that morning, actually sleeping at the precinct. It was uh, a turnaround. This thing goes down at about 5.30 in the morning, and uh, the desk lieutenant comes and wakes me up in the detective's dorm and says, Listen, crime scene can't get here. Crime scene, well, the detectives that basically handled the overnight events until the, the regular detectives came in, but they weren't available. They were caught on something in another part of Brooklyn. So he wakes me up, and I go out to the scene, and I start investigating it myself, and, and my partners come in, and it's just, the book details the investigation, but it also details the character arc and the background of Patty Durr. To be perfectly honest, he's damaged. It's a very tough life. Uh, he seems to have triumphed, but he just keeps sabotaging himself, and he's on the verge of getting divorced uh, because of infidelity. Uh, at the time he catches this murder, and he, he's got to deal with all of these things in this murder that the city doesn't even want anybody to go into, because they don't want they don't want anybody knowing that the gangs are banging it out on the street. So that's uh, that's the crux. We we uh, we look to see if Patty can uh, keep all the balls in the air. I, I I can relate to some of that personal stuff. I was divorced twice, man, <laughs> and worked those overnights, and, and uh, went out and did all kinds of crazy stuff, and brought it home, and and. Uh, yeah, it's definitely not conducive I, I to a marriage. Yet. That that chart. <laughs> you're, you're you're writing these books, and and what did you just self-publish the first time around, or you did you get a publisher? Yeah, a publisher? I used I actually used a publishing company. Uh, it's a it's a pay-to-play, uh, but 
to do shot to pieces, but you, I had to pay a lot out of pocket. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, I discovered they weren't doing anything for me that I couldn't do for myself. So I yeah. actually got into a dispute with them over advertising. Michael, everybody I've talked to that has done something like what you did has that same exact story. So the one book I've done, actually I've done another one, it's more like a, a, a historical fiction of the Western frontier, but but everyone I've done, I just took shots, shots straight to Amazon, just on my own name. Yeah, well, the, the problem with Amazon is it doesn't put you everywhere. So what I yeah. did, I uh, I killed the contract immediately with uh, with this Lulu Publications and republished it. it. Took me three days to get the book up on Amazon. Within a week, I had doubled my sales. Yeah, because now I can advertise on Amazon. Yeah. So the shot to pieces took off for a. Uh, uh, a debut independent novel it's it's done and is doing very well yeah i, I can see i i know enough about this when you get 172 uh, what is it, like four and a half almost five star ratings uh, that that translates into quite a few looks <laughs> well what's funny are the, are the negative in- reviews no they're crazy aren't they <laughs> well you know what it is you learn you you discover more about the reviewer than anything about the book like oh so th- these are the prejudices you bring to the book to, to the table so you know i mean i've come to the point now i laugh at them yeah at first it hurts your feelings and yeah then, yeah and then you start looking at them and i'm thinking did he even watch my movie <laughs> Yeah. I, mean, I don't even know what they're talking about here or or something else. Like uh, one, um, one lady said, well, I, I didn't even know this was a documentary and I paid $1.99 to rent this, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, And gave me one star. Like, well, come on, lady, it says documentary up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 because it was delivered as labeled, but it wasn't my expectation. Okay, thanks for participating. Goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, you better not have a thin skin or just leave reading those reviews alone. No, well, re- recently um, I got a bad review. It's like the one bad review I got so far for uh, A Reckoning in Brooklyn. And, uh, evident- and it uh, actually it illuminated something for me. Evidently, a lot of my bad guys are fat. It's, oh, really? just, it's just the way it is. They, you know, they're fat because they're based upon real people yeah. who happen to have been fat. Many of them had their nickname was like, Fat Archie. Yeah. Listen, that's his nickname. I didn't give it to him. His mother did. <laughs> but they're interspersed without the book, throughout the book. And this one reviewer went through it. And first she trashed my writing. She said that obviously I was passionate about it, but I'm not that good of a writer. And, yeah. then, and then she was going on and on and on. And then her last sentence exposed everything. Because her profile, there was no picture. And this yeah. is a person yeah. who reviews a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, what are you hiding, Ashley? And uh, her last sentence of the review was, and it's clear that the writer hates fat people. Yeah, there you go. I don't hate fat people. That that was their name. (laughs) That's a problem when when you live this life that we did as a policeman. You just call things as they are on the streets. You don't try to make everything politically correct. You just this is just the way it is. You know, I didn't I didn't start this. But, yeah, uh, and, and, and and yeah, and listen, if the N word appears in dialogue, it's because yeah. it appeared in dialogue. Right, it happened all the time. It didn't come out of my detective's mouth. <laughs> 
Yep, I know what you mean. For the so, most part, so, that's something you want to stay away from that word now anyway. It's toxic. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. Even in fiction. So, yeah, yeah. And just just from a personal standpoint, when I yeah. would uh, – obviously, I worked in, a, in an integrated neighborhood. We had a, we had, yeah. uh, a black section, uh, a Latino section. We had uh, Mexicans and uh, Panamanians moving in. We had – and there were whites uh, still in Bushwick. Um you know, old Europeans, uh, the old Italians, some of them were still uh, entrenched down there. And uh, you would get a black suspect in, and they'd be talking to you and like they'd want to be friends with you and they'd be referring to you as their N-word. Yeah. yeah. And I'd like, I'd put my hand up. I'm like, I'm not going to use that word. I'm not going to let you use that word. Strike that word from this conversation. Yeah. You want to use that word? Call me buddy. <laughs> All right. Or if you're trying to insult me, call me an asshole. But don't use that word. There you go. And they'd be like, all right. Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. So that's a landmine uh, yeah. landmine avoided. Yeah, they used, they used to call me the blue-eyed devil. <laughs> yeah, I got that too. Actually, up in Washington Heights, which was all Dominican, uh, they yeah. called me uh, loco gringo. Crazy blue eyes. <laughs> Well, it's it's quite a life. Let's talk a little bit about Bushwick and about this reckoning in Brooklyn. You know, uh, sure. Uh, you, I told you, and, and folks, if I haven't got this out yet, it'll be coming out shortly after this podcast here, doing this series on the uh, Pizza Connection, which was the Bonanno family and, and their one of their crews, which was made up of all native-born Sicilians who were brought over here primarily by Carmine Galente to, to run the heroin trade. They can kind of keep the keep up the fiction that, that the mafia, you know, the organized mafia, uh, the commission doesn't approve of dealing in heroin or any kind of narcotics by the family, but but you got this little separate crew of, of Sicilians that were dealing in, you know, millions, billions of dollars over the many years of, of heroin. And, and in your book, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, uh, uh, you indicated that, that you based a lot of that on some of those, those people that were in the... Uh, the the pizza connection case and it was really interesting case it was like a billion and a half dollars over they estimated over uh 10 years or so that they they even knew about it. and it had been going on since before that hell had been going on since 19 since the 50s in the united states mm. well so, with the uh when galante set up his uh his sicilian uh arm of the bananos um they had a brilliant distribution set uh system that they put in place they were using all the italian bakeries and pizzerias now and they were able to go nationwide through the pizzerias because some of the pizzerias would claim to have famous pizza dough that they would ship all over the country to other pizzerias all up and down the eastern seaboard uh and that west even out west and you can freeze pizza dough so they used to freeze the heroin in the pizza dough and ship that out. That's how they went nationwide. And it's brilliant if you think about it. Um, yeah, it was. It was. They had three but, of them in Illinois. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Illinois. Uh, I know they went all the way down to uh, the tip of Florida. Uh, there was yeah. a pizzeria we, we in Key West Missouri that they rolled up. Reason. I don't know if they went that far west. Yeah, we didn't there, might have, there might have been an issue with uh, the guy in Cleveland. Um he might have had that territory. Uh, you definitely had heroin there, uh, but oh, yeah. it just, you know, it's there are territories nationwide, uh, and evidently they respect that because they don't want to go to war uh, halfway across the country, I guess. Really? But, 
So now, now you came up through uh, Washington Heights and 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 then Brooklyn too. Was primarily in in Kansas City and and near as I can tell, Chicago. I know the most about those cities. Is the heroin is primarily a African American drug in the fifties and sixties, and especially in the sixties and seventies before crack came in. And was it that way in New York City? Were they uh, were they furnishing the what's his name, Nicky Barnes and Nicky Barnes was uh, Nicky Barnes was up in uh, up in Harlem, um, and he was uh, actually he wasn't even the guy. If you saw the movie uh, American Gangster, uh, yeah. Frank uh, Lucas oh, Frank was Lucas, actually yeah. the master that was bringing the uh, the heroin over from uh, Southeast Asia. So he he had a connection to Southeast Asia. The uh, yeah, through the military, they were actually uh, if, if you can believe the mo- movie, and, and I've heard this before. Uh, and actually read a true crime version of it. They were bringing the heroin back in the caskets of the uh, mutilated marine, uh, oh, yeah, remains yeah, of the that. soldiers, which is, I don't know if, if blasphemy is even a strong enough word. That's, That's just really disgusting. Um, but in any event, the heroin uh, in Bushwick, for the most part, was uh, probably coming from uh, from Corsica. When I was growing up as a kid, it was French Connection heroin, basically. And that, that was, those were the Corsican labs. It was the Sicilians. Uh, they were getting the uh, the heroin, uh, and they were being refined in Corsica. And then they had their uh, their shipping pipeline uh, through Montreal, I believe. Um, right, right. But uh, the thing about it is, Joe Bonanno was uh, he was probably the forerunner to John Gotti in that he didn't keep a low profile. He was out and about. He wanted to be seen. He was shaking hands, kissing babies, like he was an elected official. He always called himself a man of honor, but meanwhile, he was poisoning his own neighborhood, peddling heroin. Yeah. And in Bushwick, when the narcotics first started taking off, it was the, not a lot of white people coming down from Queens to buy. So it, it was rapidly becoming an epidemic in every community. And uh, you, just, you would see people uh, over time come down, and they would just look worse every time they came down. They'd be nodding out right on the corners in Bushwick. And if they had a dollar left in their pocket, somebody was taking it. It was just it was kind of disgusting. You know, and I knew all of these guys that were involved in it because I played ball with their sons. You know, organized football and baseball and basketball. And uh, I was good friends with a couple of them, yeah. but for the most part, they were just waiting to grow up to go into the family business. I didn't like those guys. <laughs> you know, they make, make-believe tough guys. If there's six of us, we'll fight. I'm like, yeah. well, it's just me, so we're going to fight. But uh, yeah, I just, uh, I don't have any respect for the mafia because I know what hypocrites and liars they are. Yeah. So your characters in A Reckoning in Brooklyn are, are based on a lot of the uh, uh, actual... People, family members, and members of the Bonanno family, sounds like. Yeah, but I changed the names. Uh, I might slightly change the descriptions. Uh, see, part of the reason is people my age, there were a handful of the kids from that neighborhood that are lawyers, they're chiropractors, they're doctors. They didn't go into the family business. And I'm in contact with some of them. So, you know, I don't need to slander them. It's not necessary. Uh, and I'm writing fiction anyway, so... I just change the name so it's unrecognizable to theirs, and they have the ability to just not pay attention. Yeah, that's always a it's a kind of a line that I get called on a little bit on just documenting and 
and uh, kind of, uh, shall we say, advertising the, the mafia because it's always it's Italian. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's Italian, and and there's a lot of you know the majority of the Italian people are you know good solid citizens who uh, are doctors, lawyers, and bakers and candlestick makers and prominent citizens and, and all that. But there's a certain percentage that that were criminals and and just stone criminals that uh, you know that that victimized their own people as well as anybody oh, else. Oh, the first people they victimized were their own. Every single Italian business on Nicobacca Avenue was paying protection. And what was the protection? Give us money or we're going to burn you out. Yeah. So I need protection from you. I'm paying you <laughs> to protect me from you. Yeah. I mean talk about a parasitic relationship. Really? So, and and, and and even the, your first Italian policeman there, Joe Petrosino, uh, uh, was investigating uh, people who were victimizing the uh, early uh, shopkeepers, and and uh, they killed him. They yeah, he got him. set up. Put a contract out on him and killed him over in Italy or Sicily. Went over there to find. Uh, yeah, and uh, and ultimately it was probably another New York cop that gave him up. Yeah, and uh, you know the, the, the Sicilian mafia. They're not afraid to kill cops. <laughs> no, they're not. So, they but Joe, Joe Petrosino yeah, is, a, is, a, is he's at the very top of our pantheon of heroes in the NYPD. Yeah. Everybody that comes on the job, if they don't know about him already, they're going to learn about him because he is the pinnacle of integrity. Uh, interesting. Yeah, he would have been. He would have been. We, we had one here in Kansas City, a guy named Joe Ramo. And he he was working, you know, of course, it, it, it was kind of like blacks when they first became policemen. They could only police in the black neighborhoods and and uh, Italians could only police in the Italian neighborhood in 1912, I think, 1910. And, and he learned some information about uh, some black hand guys that killed this uh, shopkeeper. And, and he was ambushed on his way home, uh, jumped out. They had a thing they called signboard, and there were these signboards along the street. And he'd walk at home at night because he lived in the neighborhood, and, and uh, they jumped out from behind the signboard with a shotgun and, and blew him away. So that's, uh, I tell you what, it's, uh, uh, those were tough times there, and that's what the mafia came out of was those black anders. They, Slowly but surely, in modern times, their sons are, are drifting into legitimate business and out of the business. We well, you got to remember, at no time was the percentage greater than 2% of the Italian yeah. population were actually involved in organized crime. Most of them were victims of it. Uh, Mario Puzo, uh, you know, as a writer and a reader, Mario Puzo is literarily a giant. I mean, he wrote beautiful, yeah. brilliant Weeping stories, but they're bullshit. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to say that? That's okay. Yeah, you, this is this is the internet. I, I already put a, an explicit thing on there because there's an f bomb that gets dropped every now and then. Well, it's, 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 they're nonsense. Okay, the, the simple fact of the matter is, Puzo created heroes out of people who were thugs who would have stolen a grandmother's eyes for three cents, and the whole nonsense with Omerta. They've been flipping since Joe Valachi. They're spraining their backs, jumping over each other to flip on each other. It's just nonsense. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, this mystique works for their intimidation. Whereas if they didn't have the mystique, you'd size the guy up and say, I can get a gun too. No. Yeah, really. <laughs> Take it on a hop. But people, oh, he's mafia. I got to pay. Really? Yeah. Why? I never did. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's a certain uh, that, and they play to. They know how to play to that. You know, they they you know, uh, it, in subtle ways, they know how to play to that perceived strength and support and danger that that they represent. That a lot of people will just give into. They uh, and and the, I guess the uh, uh, the media or maybe the entertainment <laughs> milieu has not really helped with that. No, well, because because the romanticized version is actually, I mean, it's a great story. Yeah, it's a great story. But well, it's a story. It it's a story. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and to be perfectly honest, I've seen people who have stood up to them largely by assuring them the cost-benefit of this relationship is not going to be good for you. <laughs> and they understood he's not going to pay me every month and he's going to kill my guys when they come in for the money. And I don't have that many guys. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to harass the other pizzeria. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, well that worked. The path of least resistance is what those <clears throat> guys usually take, but Yeah, well they're thieves, you know. They're they're, they're, yeah. they're scoundrels and thieves and, you know. But uh yeah, and uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, a whole generation of Italian young men from uh, my old neighborhood in Bushwick and Ridgewood, uh, during the purge, when Messina was cleaning everything up, um, these kids went into the family business. Half of them were Sicilian, half of them were old-time mobsters, uh, you know, involved with the old-time guys, Yeah, uh, basically the, the extortionists and the, uh, and the hijackers. Uh, but they all ended up in the, in the trunk of their car at the long-term lot at Kennedy Airport. Because they were part of the purge. Yeah. So you wanted to do this since you were 12 years old, and now you're 29, and you're dead and bloated and stinking in the trunk of a car. Was it worth it? Yeah, really. Yeah. So it's a crazy life, but like you said, there's some great stories out of these things. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But but the other thing characters. is. The other thing is, and I tried to expose it in a reckoning in Brooklyn. Uh, one of the guys that I grew up with, his foot was the banana pornographer, and uh, a lot of people don't know that. I mean, before the internet, obviously, uh, there was a great market for pornography. Yeah, and there was. The, and the way that you got that is, you went into grocery stores, and they had a secret stash, and you paid for it. First, they were Betamax, and they converted to VHS. So you were buying your pornography. They were VHS tapes, and fairly professionally wrapped and marketed, you know, uh, cover art and all of that. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> but one of the kids I grew up with playing ball, and he was a great guy because he did not get involved in that life. I think he became an accountant, but uh, his father was the pornographer. And uh, another, a neighbor of mine had a three-car garage, old house in Ridgewood, uh, and he was the storage hub for them. He had skids of these tapes in his garage with tarps over them. And uh, we were in the garage, and he's like, yeah, you can look at anything you want under this tarp and this tarp. The, the ones on the, the far right were good. The ones in the middle were, eh, stay away from those. And then the ones on the far left, don't go anywhere near those. <laughs> so basically what it was, was the ones on the right were just straight up pornos. The ones in the middle were kind of exploitive porn. The girls were junkies. Uh, you could tell that there's no consent here because they're not even here. Yeah. And then the ones on the far left were the animals and the kids. Oh, God. Now, I heard rumors about snuff tapes. Yeah. Supposedly, 
And these were the things that were supposed to be going for crazy money. Never actually saw one, never actually had anyone confirm that they existed, but there was enough talk about it that, hey, listen, this talk didn't wasn't created in a vacuum. They're talking about it because it exists. At least this is what my rational mind's telling me. Uh, I actually write about that aspect of it in uh, in a reckoning in Brooklyn. You know, just to, just to show you how low they go, the way they destroy destroy lives for the purposes of making a few bucks. And um, I, I think I did a good job of illustrating their depravity. But it's not. This is definitely not a, a romance, a mafia romance uh, story. My heroes are clearly the detectives and the DEA agents. FBI is a little crooked, but that's just from my own personal experience that got written in. By the way, I have no use for the FBI. I can tell. I can tell. I can tell. I had pretty good luck. We had a few agents that worked with us in the intelligence unit, but we didn't usually. A couple of them but I had to work with, I would not choose to work with again. But there was a couple of them that were just like cops. But, you know, people are people, whatever they are. My, my experience with respect to FBI agents, I knew, I think, five that were... Dynamite investigators, they were detectives for all intents and purposes. They were getting paid by the feds, but they were detectives. And what I discovered about each of those is that they were the sons of New York City detectives. Uh, Well, there you go. It's the family business. The rest of them couldn't find their own asses with an ice pick. (laughs) And nine times out of ten, when the case would would blow up because of their ineptitude, they'd look to hang it on a cop. Yeah. And the other thing is, and I pointed this out to a U.S. attorney who was so in love with the FBI. I don't particularly care for the U.S. attorney's office either. I was just, uh, they were after me for five years for civil rights offenses because I made too many gun arrests. Yeah. Thanks for showing up. But I said to her, I'm like, you think you love these FBI guys? I said, but you really have to take a longer look, a, a, a stand back and look at what it is. Do you know why every major city in the country has joint federal local task forces. And she's like, I figure they just wanted to force the goodwill. I'm like, nobody has any goodwill in this business. The reason why you have joint federal task force with local law enforcement is somebody has to go to fucking jail. And the FBI isn't putting them there. Yeah. And and, and all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off over her head. She's like, yeah, I need something done. I better tell a cop. Yeah. So that's, you know... Largely my experience with the FBI. <laughs> well, that's uh, folks, that's been Mike O'Keefe on everything from growing up in Brooklyn to, to the FBI and the mafia and everything else. Michael, I appreciate you coming on the show. Let's uh, let's do a little promo for your – you've got a website. Yes, sir. Uh, it's your name, www.michaelokeefe.com or no, Michael O'Keefe. Michael O'Keefe author. author.com. Author. Author.com, okay, and uh, it's got a little short trailers for each of your books that tells you a little bit about what they are. And, and there's, actually, there's actually a direct link uh, to my Amazon page from the website. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, your, your author page. He has an author page, too, by the way, folks. If you want to see all of his books at one fell swoop and then choose which one you want to buy on uh, uh, 
Amazon, just uh, Google Michael O'Keefe, author, Amazon, and you'll get all these books to come up, and then you can click on each one of them. So give us, uh, give the folks here kind of like one sentence about each one of your books and, and uh, what they can expect and uh, uh, whatever else you want to tell them, and then we'll get out of here. Well, Shot to Pieces, my first novel, is uh, largely autobiographical. It's about a troubled detective who catches a... Uh, troubling homicide uh and uh faces static every step of the way uh he has to keep all the balls in the air uh and hopefully save his marriage solve his case and uh avoid getting pounded by the uh police department and the uh and the city government um my second book uh is a collection of 13 prize-winning stories called 13 stories uh fractured twisted and put away wet uh, there's some, I take a tour of the genres. I believe there's one or two police stories in it. There's a couple of crime stories told from the criminal's perspective. Uh, I got some dystopian horror in there. I got some science fiction. Uh, if you're a Yankee fan, uh, I even have a baseball story. It's the last, uh, <laughs> last story at the end of the book. The, the hated Yankees. You know, we hate the Yankees here in Kansas City. We hate them. <laughs> I, I'm a Yankee hater also. I grew up a Mets fan. I come oh, from okay. a National League town. My new novel, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, is uh, it's basically a reimagining of the, uh, the Pizza Connection case uh, that occurred in Brooklyn in the 70s. Patty Durr appears as a 17-year-old in that book, and we, uh, we get an idea on, A, why he's as troubled as he is, and B, who put him on the path to becoming a cop in the first place. And uh, it's, it's an interesting tome about uh, two honest detectives in a, in a corrupt universe that are uh, doing God's work against all odds, and they have to triumph over a lot of forces, including their own federal government. And that's, uh, that's a reckoning. So is, is this Patty Durr character, are you planning a, maybe a recurring... Yeah, in, in November... Matthew's Gutter, something like that? Yeah, in November, I'm going to... Uh, November 1st, actually, I'm releasing Burnt to a Crisp, which is a true Patty Durr sequel. Okay, He's, cool. uh comes on the uh comes on the heels of uh of shot to pieces. Uh I'm halfway done with the next Patty Durr book, actually more than halfway done. I still don't have a title. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh my working title at this point is Killing Caitlin. But I'm really like where it's going. At some point Patty is uh by the end of this novel, he's kind of at the sunset of his career. He's uh he's operating obviously at the highest levels of uh, detective work in New York, but uh, we age out at 63. I don't have a specific age for Patty, but he's got grown kids that are already cops. Yeah. So he's getting close to the end. I may actually continue the series with his son, and then I can reintroduce a lot of stuff from my early career. All right, I got you. All right, Michael. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you coming on the show and and talking with my folks out here. And we will look forward to uh, reading some of those books. All right. Appreciate you having me, Gary. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That was Michael O'Keefe, a retired New York City Police Department homicide detective turned crime writer. His most recent novel is Reckoning in Brooklyn. I highly recommend you try it. You know, he based this novel on the real-life mobsters involved in the Pizza Connection case, and uh, Cam and I are planning a multi-episode series on that case. This is a case where uh, Sicilians came over. Uh, they were called commonly called Zips in the United States. They set up a huge, big heroin distribution network 
throughout the upper Midwest and the Northeast. Now for my public service announcement. If you have a friend or a loved one that has a problem that might be connected to PTSD, uh, there's help out there, especially for veterans. There's a hotline and a PTSD Awareness Center at 1-800-273-8255. Be sure and press 1 if you're a veteran. Now, don't forget to hit me up on the Venmo app. Don't forget to uh, take a look at my shop page and make a donation. I'll, if you want a DVD of uh, any one of my movies for $25 or more, I'll send you one of those. It has a special features on it. Or you want my book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos, or I can send you a uh, certificate to get you a Kindle version. You know, the Kindle version has the actual wiretap hooked to it. I have my KC Mob Tour app. What else have I got to sell? I can't think of anything else i got to sell. Anyhow, this has been a fun interview with a, with another fellow copper that I went into true crime when, when I left the PD and he went to, into fictional crime, but based it on true crime. Sometimes I think I should try that, but I don't know if I have the, the creative juices to do that. Good night, all you wiretappers out there. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. Reckoning in Brooklyn, that's... Uh, that's up your alley, right? That's the uh, Pizza Connection case. That's, a, that's, that's kind of from people, things you saw growing up in the, in the neighborhood there in... Correct. In Brooklyn, and, and a lot of them were like... Uh, did you know any of those uh, uh, Sicilians like the South Catalano or... Uh, uh, yeah, I knew all of them. Uh, to be perfectly honest, from my perspective, I wasn't impressed with any of them. Yeah. I knew they were ruthless. Uh, I knew they had their hands in the heroin. Uh, had problems with some of their kids. Uh, you know, took care of that. Took care of that in the old New York City way. <laughs> yeah. I could tell you probably could handle yourself from day one. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I was. Uh, you, you were. You were blessed with certain physical attributes. I had a son. I had a son on my forehead that said, "Not to be fucked with." <laughs> I guess my it's kind of interesting as I started studying that that they developed this whole crew that were all Sicilians that handled all Well they they weren't stuff. they weren't developed. What happened was Carmine Galante was apart from not trusting anyone and having had uh inroads in Sicily before this because he had originally set up the French connection to come to uh uh Canada. He actually got deported from Canada and did time in the I think the 40s. Uh, so he was uh, well acquainted with the Sicilian Mafia and particularly the Corsican uh, labs. So when he set up the same pipeline now coming to uh, to Brooklyn, uh, he didn't trust anybody uh, of the old mustache Pete's, but he trusted his Sicilians because he could manipulate them. They were willing to come work for him. So he basically created his army down here, and he cut the old-time gangsters out, which is pretty much why his life was on bar time. That's why yeah. he ended up dead in Joe and Mary's on Knickerbocker Avenue. Um, but uh, ostensibly, what happened is somebody was smart enough, and I think it might have been Sonny Black and Delicato, uh, whispered in, in the head Sicilian's ear, was it Amuso was his name? Uh, 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 let's he was the guy that appeared to be the head of the Bananos after after Galante oh, got Catalano. clipped. Yeah, that, okay, yeah, that was South Catalano. 
Okay. He, he kind of like, yeah, he, he started me. He met with Paul Castellano right after that. Right, right, after right. He right. got killed, and, and he didn't last very long as, as they quickly came up with somebody else. But, yeah. Well, uh, ultimately what happened is that about the same time was the Joe Pistone incident. Yeah. Where uh, the uh, the FBI agent infiltrated them, so pretty much there was a purge, and the guy that came out on top after that was uh, Fat. Uh, the hell's his name? He's a rat now. He just rolled. Oh, Joe Messino. Joe Messino. Messino. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he was like the first boss that actually uh, came in. It was well, he cleaned everything up. He was he was an old time uh, hood. He was a, I think he was a hijacker. Uh, he had his hands in prostitution uh, in the prostitution rings. Uh, he really didn't make any narcotics money. So when they had that whole incident, that the, the Sicilians had to be brought uh, back under because they weren't behaving, and then the pizza connection case broke, and they all started flipping. Yeah. So the commission basically said to Messino, clean this up or this family doesn't exist anymore. And Messino basically went through the bananas like a scythe, killed everybody. Yeah, that's what he killed. Except for his guy. His guys, I should say. But then he turned out to be a rat, too. So. <laughs> yeah, that's why... That's why I'm not I'm not terribly impressed with this omerta <laughs> bullshit. 